As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode to, of the Malcolm Effect. I'm super excited to have our guest, Sita. I've been able to um, actually came across our guest work firstly in Empire's Endgame, which helped me a lot in my own kind of scholarship and thinking about how class works in the UK. And now we're speaking about all things sexuality and the making of race. How are you? And welcome to the Malcolm Effect, Sita. Hi, how are you doing? It's great to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you so much. I kind of laid the groundwork for our listeners then. Why did you write this book? So the book came out of my PhD research, um, which I did between 2012 and 15, 16. Even though that was only a few years ago, things look quite different now, I think, in the world and especially in Britain than they did then. So I did that research, which was kind of about how sexuality functioned in the war on terror and how that was part of a kind of neoliberal project through which a certain kind of political subject was made. And it was my contention that that all operated on the basis of sexuality being understood as foundational to who we are. And so I thought about how that operated in the war on terror. For a while, that seemed like kind of a good project, but I quickly found myself being outrun by events so one of the problems and I know you'll all find this if you do this in your own work one of the problems about writing about the contemporary moment is that things keep happening and they're going to always happen quicker than you can write about them so I kept finding that every time I wanted to kind of publish something from the PhD events would already have kind of made what had seemed prescient in some way when I wrote it a couple of years ago start to seem obvious or just like a moment that had just passed so I thought let me try get to the kind of prehistory of these moments. Let me go back rather than try to stay totally up to the current moment. And so from there, I try to understand what made these events and try to sort of put together a genealogy of the way in which sexuality has become foundational to the making of racial categories. And so the book really came out of that attempt to kind of start a bit earlier, to start with the colonial developments that get us here, and then to try and track what's going on in the present. So the book takes up sort of two methods at the same time, if you like. One, a sort of tracking of a colonial genealogy and the other an attempt to understand what's going on now because I think it's important that we always think about the effects that those big European empires had without assuming everything is just an effect of those and that there's no contemporary dynamics of power and capital that we need to attend to so that's the sort of thank you so much yeah that's a brilliant thank you so much for laying that kind of context for us and in the book you speak about the immutability of how, how we think about race as immutable and increasingly we think about gender as immutable what does this kind of similarity do for you in your work seeing these two categories so I think in my own work one of the things that I've really try to do is think about how these categories come into the world together, how they're mutually constituting. So in recent years, we've come to think a lot about 
the ways identity categories function together through the lens of intersectionality. And while I think that concept has a lot of use in the context it came from, so if you're thinking about the legal context in which it was sort of developed in feminist legal theory, but I don't think it really helps us to understand the operation of power in making the categories to begin with. And so for me, thinking about gender, race and sexuality together is not about thinking about how they intersect, but how they come to make each other in the modern world. Thank you once again. And I heard you on a previous podcast and you kind of spoke about where you saw the limitations of queer theory in that we shouldn't immediately assume because someone has a quote unquote and uh, I hate to use this language, but a non-normative sexuality that cannot be seen immediately as inherently radical or as revolutionary. Mm. So what's the beef with queer theory? (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's a kind of friendly beef with queer theory, but queer theory is very important to my own intellectual and political development. I think the thing that's really useful about it is that it turns the spotlight back on the institutions of heterosexual life. So something like Michael Warner's work on marriage talks about the way that marriage as a relationship with the state helps to kind of reassure us of uh, the values of a certain, if you like, normative existence. But one of the problems with queer theory is that it has tended to assume that the norms are very strict and as such, anything that falls out of them is very radical. And I'm just not sure that that really holds in our contemporary moment, if it ever did. So, for example, homosexuality was perfectly ordinary among the British upper classes in various contexts, not least the empire. I'm not convinced we would say that was radical or subversive. And in our own moment, I think it's important to remember that the state project isn't that concerned with our sexual behavior for the most part and we shouldn't pretend that it is because I think if we hold on to the fantasy that it is then we can convince ourselves that sexual experimentation is a substitution for politics which I don't think it is so I think you know there was a time in which state control of sexual behavior was much stricter than it is now and there are obviously still instances in which people's sexual behavior is very clearly punished so you might think about sex work as one of those examples but in general I'm not sure that for example being queer is necessarily aligned with any particular political significance in our current moment absolutely so what I'm hearing is we need to bring back a class analysis (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely we certainly do need to bring back a class analysis but I think we also need to bring back some of the tools of cultural studies so how do we attend to the current conjuncture how do we think about what are the forces at play in the social world that we currently live in because we know that world really well right we live in its textures we organize our lives to its rhythms and so we've got to start there with and this is the kind of Marxist bit, with what's really going on. So not the ideas in our head, but the reality around us. And from there, a class analysis will absolutely play a huge part in that. But so will an attendance to how life changes around us and how we can be aware of that and bring our political eye to those changes. Thank you so much, Deej. 
yeah thank you so much for that Sita there is so much value in what you've said so much that aligns with my own thinking and a lot of the criticisms I have of not only intersectional theory in its contemporary iterations but also queer theory in its contemporary iterations and I think that especially what you said about the state's sort of passivity to our sexual behaviours but I think that there's a flip side of that where because of the sort of moral panics around sexual behaviours the state is now being kind of pushed to be more regulatory of sexual behaviours right but whilst being regulatory of sexual behaviours also masquerading and pretending ideologically that it is in fact not concerned with embedding our lives embedding our sexual lives into its statecraft and I think that that's a really like interesting moment we're in right now right where we have the sort of like pink washing moment the neoliberalization of sexual identity is something that's inherently radical just for the sake of it but then also the kind of attempts to conscript sexual behaviours, especially gender, gendered behaviours and gender identities into a really sort of narrow political analysis, into a sometimes really fascistic politics. And I just wondered what you think about those sort of like current tensions and contradictions. Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. I think what's interesting is that they are, there is absolutely a use of sexual politics and particularly the politics of gender, politics around gender transition, and also a sexual panic about the sexuality of children that continues to reappear in every possible guise. And that is a politics that the hard right and various reactionary forces are making great use of. I think they're really the masters of the form and they are using it to great effect at the moment. And so I think we've got to be really attentive to that and push back at that at every opportunity. But I'm not so convinced that this is, at this current moment, leading to legislative or political change in terms of a kind of real lived material reality. So though there is a lot of very dangerous noise being made, there's a lot of very scary kind of feeding of a sort of frenzied terror around gender transition and a shift away from a binary gender system that's really terrifying and it's going to do a lot of damage it's already doing a lot of damage to people's lives but some of the old ways in which sexual behavior was regulated so for example around access to benefits for example around like marriage laws all the kind of really structural ways in which people's access to resources functions. So to give an example, in the 1970s, local councils would send sex snoopers to check whether or not women who claimed to be living alone had men coming and going from their houses. Because if they did, then their benefits could be cut because the logic was that a man, if you were to sleep with a man, he ought to be paying for your kind of, you should also have an economic partnership with him. This is sort of ironic in a time in which sex work is still highly criminalised. And I think that what we have at the moment is a lot of very dangerous moral panic. But that other form of the state's intervention into our sexual lives is quite different than in that older moment. I think it's important to track that difference. Yes, absolutely. But then in the sort of more global and more expansive analysis, we look at you know nations in Africa, we look at the US, we look at some other sort of nations that are currently engaging in very sort of restrictive, very violent regulations of sexual politics. So how does that then fit into our analysis? 
yeah, absolutely. We're seeing various versions of that in really dangerous and scary ways. So the recent anti-gay laws in Uganda being a really prime example. And I think what that shows us is the way that sexuality can be a highly effective tool of statecraft, a highly effective mm-hmm. tool, precisely because we experience it as so intrinsic to ourselves. So because we've come to experience sexuality as foundational to the self, as part of our deepest identity, it's one of the things that can be most easily manipulated. And that's going to look different at different times and in different places. So we're not going to see a totally even global iteration of these politics. I think we should be attentive to those distinctions, while also being attentive to the way in which, for example, in the Ugandan case, one of the arguments that is made is that homosexuality is a Western construct, Mm -hmm. right? And so we can see the ways in which we're all enmeshed in these global circuits of value and of political claim making. And so actually kind of Looking at the way all of that works together, we can see that what kind of strategy we might need in one place might be different from another place. But what's crucial is always having our eye on how the claims that are made in one place can affect the claims that are made in another. So the claim that homosexuality is a Western invention is just really the mirror image of the claim how you treat your homosexuals is the sign of how civilised a society you are that's been being made in the West for the last sort of 30 or 40 years. Yeah. And of course, that sort of claim being made by the West is often then a geopolitical strategy of not only counterterrorism, but also an ideological application of certain types of value to certain types of statecraft. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen loads of really telling examples of this in the last couple of decades. So might remember when David Cameron said that he wanted to export the team that did the gay rights bill in the UK around the world. And to think of that as an export good, I think is a really sort of telling idea. That (laughs) the Conservatives spent a few years thinking that they could make pro-gay legislation part of a kind of commodity yeah a commodity exactly and you know that's at the same time as they were selling the prevent program around the world too yeah exactly exactly mama do you have anything to add yeah i just wanted to kind of explore the figure of the the british asian male and what kind of what does that figure represent for you in your work and why do you theorize around that figure Mm, yeah, it's a great question, I think. So one of the things that I write about in in the book is these novels and memoirs that came out in the sort of mid-2000s by Safras Mandor, Nirpal Singh Dhaliwal, Satnam Sanghera. And they were incredibly popular. They were kind of Waterstones top table sort of books, you know, um, really aimed at the general reader. And they all in the end told the same story, which was about the desire for assimilation, about being, quote unquote, caught between two cultures, between the kind of suffocating norms of their families and traditions, and then the dazzling promise of sexual freedom in Britain. And really, these are quite banal stories about wanting to move to London and get jobs in the media and marry white women, which are all perfectly reasonable things to do. But it's kind of extraordinary to that there's a whole series of books about this quite banal idea. 
And I thought, why is there such a market for this? Why do people want to read these stories? And it struck me that, one, this is part of a long history of fascination with the exotic possibilities of South Asian men, male sexuality, and we can see that in the colonial archive quite clearly. But the other thing was that it offered a sort of reassurance. It said that the vision of sexual freedom that is being offered by the West is one that many people want to buy into. Look, these men want to buy into it, therefore it must be right. They don't want to benefit from the patriarchal position they've been given in their own communities. They want instead this thing that we're offering. So it was also doing all of this work to kind of reassure a sort of polity of the possibilities of a collective project organised around the same idea of sexual freedom. Thank you so much for that. And your work focuses a lot on the uh, colonial context in India. So my Mm -hmm. question then becomes, what is it about, let's say, the colonial context in India historically that helps us think about the ways in which our identities are constructed as those in the diaspora in Mm -hmm. the West today? Yeah, I think I sort of struggled about whether or not to focus solely on the relationship between colonial India and Britain today or to look more widely. And then in the end thought, I have to at some point draw some lines around it because you can't write about everything. And one of the things that's fascinating, I think, about Britain's um, rule over India is just how full of contradiction it is. So if we take a figure like Enoch Powell, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the architects of post-colonial nationalist racism in Britain, he was a man that would say that he loved India. He he, He was part of the colonial project and he would describe himself as someone with a great love for India. But he really did also think that Indians should stay there and not turn up on his shores. And so I think there's something about the intimacy of that relationship, one in which India was understood to be the jewel in Britain's colonial crown, but its arrivals uh, to the so-called mother country were treated in a much more kind of um, uncertain way. And so I think this kind of contradictory position can be seen in all these different ways. So it can also be seen in the way that India was seen both as a kind of separate civilization with its own historical grandeur that's fundamentally uh, inferior to European social mores. And both of those things were happening at the same time. So women, Indian women were seen both as kind of innocent and in need of protection, as seductive and deceptive and liable to sort of seduce or have power over innocent English men. And I think it's in those contradictions that race making really happens, not just in the simple insistence on superiority or power, but always in something more complex, more contradictory, more compelling than that. And in thinking about those contradictions, one thing I find quite interesting is if we think about, so in the aftermath of 9-11, you could see images of and trigger warning of pictures of bin laden being sodomized by twin towers for example and mm-hmm. that was posters quite in in public in some places but at the same time they also have to, have to construct you know the, the image of the the native and the beast and the person has a sexual prowess in his masculinity but also want to be dominated what do you mind unpacking that contradiction when it comes to masculinity Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's such an interest. It was such an interesting moment for sexual politics. Such a disturbing set of images with which we were almost constantly bombarded. And Judith Butler, I think, has written really well about this and talks about how 
For example, the images of sexualized torture at Abu Ghraib were understood to reflect a kind of depravity of the Muslim man rather than what one might see in them, which is a kind of sexual depravity of the American soldier. But they were sort of implicitly by the wider discourse, the idea of the the brown man or Muslim man's kind of deviant sexuality had been so powerfully mobilised that the kinds of violence that were used against Muslim men were also sexual in nature. And there was a kind of horrifying, sort of civilising element to that use of sexual violence, which is almost always what we see in situations of military occupation or other forms of domination. So it seems to me that what's going on there is both the kind of fear of Muslim men's sexuality, sexual prowess, sexual power, and then a need to dominate that. Thank you so much. Deej, do you have that question? (laughs) Yeah, I'm gonna. (laughs) So I think the question I actually want to ask is, I think that the moment in which we're in is seeing a sort of return to a lot of like racial essentialisms, right? a return to this notion of race as an essentialist category of both physiology and biology. And in parallel, we're seeing a similar conversation being had, not necessarily about sexuality, but certainly about sex and gender. I wonder in your work, where do you see the sorts of the utility or the, the way in which the current moment is using essentialism? Like, why is that so? What is the power in using essentialism to stoke up not only moral panics, but to create this sort of crisis of confusion around race and around, and around gender? I think that crisis of confusion is a really great way to put it, you know, because I think that one of the things that's happening is that there was, there's been a kind of widening of a set of broadly progressive ideas around gender, sexuality, to some degree race. Of course, we saw huge numbers of people who'd never gone to a protest before go to Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 in the terrible months of the first wave of the pandemic and so I think that one of the things that's happening in the kind of long aftermath of that because I do think that really put fear into the heart of the British state I think one of the things that we're seeing is an attempt to muddy the water as much as possible so Kojo Coram who's one of uh, a good friend and a a great comrade in all these in, in thinking. He's one of the people that I co-wrote Empire's Endgame with and whose book um, Uncommon Wealth is really worth reading. One of the things that Kojo says is that we're being kind of drowned in the most frivolous ideas. So rather than thinking about the material demands around access to resources that people are bringing with regards to race or gender or sexuality instead we get kind of bombarded with stories about sort of what ends up being called the culture wars so if you think about a slightly earlier example in the roads must fall campaign at oxford all of the press coverage was about wanting to get rid of white authors from reading lists and to bring down statues and change the names of things but the students demands around Uh, For example, the fair payment of cleaning staff at the university were always ignored. The demands around fees and scholarships were always ignored. And so in some ways, it's true that we are in some ways seeing a return to essentialisms, but we're also seeing something else, I think, which is an attempt to make any progressive ideas seem absurd by drowning us in a kind of a sea of 
ridiculous examples. Well, some of these examples, of course, aren't ridiculous, but the most trivial examples are always brought to the front. Whether you can say this, whether you can say that, whether or not a word for something has changed, all of this kind of stuff. When in fact, there's a set of material politics that really people are trying to push for that are being completely ignored. Absolutely. And this has come up in conversations with lots of other people we've spoken to. And I always say it as we're sort of engaged in this sort of symbolic war, right? The culture war is a a war of symbols, a war of gestures and a war of language and discourse. And that oftentimes distracts from the real material causes. But I also think that and part of the gripe I have with a lot of contemporary queer politics and contemporary sort of racial politics that doesn't have a grounding in a material analysis is that they fall into these taps, traps of the ridiculousnesses, right? They become mm-hmm. so obsessed with symbolism about being called the right thing, about representation, all of these really, you know, unimpactful politics, if not grounded in a material politics, and have completely conceded the ground to the material politics. And what I always say is, like, for example, if you think about the race report that was done by the Conservative government, um, which basically said that, you know, Britain isn't institutionally racist, but they were going to stop using they. And I just thought, like, what, what, what is this? You know, mm-hmm. there's been no seriousness on the actual material precarity the Black and Asian people face in the UK, on these long histories that have created categories of exclusion, on systems of precarity, on systems of migration, and instead we're concerned with being called the right names. And that's what they've Mm -hmm. given us. And that's what they'll always do. They'll always concede on the most ridiculous or make it the point of contention when the material basis never gets discussed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we have to, I think you're absolutely right about all of that. You put it really beautifully. I think the thing that's important is that we attend to that material basis and attend to the kind of politics needed to fight for that change without ever thinking that the ground of culture is one that we don't fight on because of course it Mm. has to be but culture is not culture shouldn't be reduced to its lowest common denominator culture shouldn't Mm -hmm. be reduced to the very worst things people are saying on social media or the very worst kinds of representation on commercial tv like we have to think about culture in a more sort of fluid and capacious way we have to think about the lived vernacular cultures of everyday life that people engage in because in those places people are actually i think a lot more generous with each other than they are in the kind of narrow discourse of social media no absolutely absolutely and i it kind of makes me return to Stuart Hall's work and the significance of like how we understand cultural production, how we understand cultural production as materially tied to our current moment, materially tied to our interests. But I think, again, social media has done a really good job of dismantling those types of relationships, dismantling that when we think about ideology, we think about it materially. We don't just think about representation for the sake of it. We're thinking about, you know, who gets to eat, who's getting served up on the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mamadou? Yeah, um, <laughs> I have a kind of a controversial question. Go for um, it. So thinking about the ways in which race and sexuality and gender come to inform each other and create each other, and thinking about our current moment then, my question becomes, since we have the t- top topic of or category of transgender, can the same argument be made for transracial? Ah, yes, this, this uh, <laughs> controversial. I didn't want to ask it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, I, there was a, f- a few years ago, this came up a lot. And there was the whole Rachel Dolezal moment and people were really asking this question. And some people tried to work it through in a sort of 
through the kind of techniques of analytic philosophy, for example. And it's not particularly my interest to kind of work through it on the basis of a sort of logic, because it seems to me that that's not really... We could do that, but we probably wouldn't get anywhere because the question is really whether or not this could have a kind of actual social purchase. And my feeling is that it probably can't, partly because we have come to understand race as something tied to questions of inheritance, right? Questions of parentage. And to my mind, the horizon of possibility here is in getting rid of race altogether in the sense of making it that these distinctions don't have don't have social purchase at all in that way and I think that transracial identity is a sort of something of like a kind of salacious possibility that was really seized upon a few years ago but one thing I will say about it I think is worth saying is that every time we see one of these cases where someone has kind of made a set of claims about their own heritage that are untrue. And we see them in the, in North America almost exclusively. They seem to happen in Canada with frightening regularity. So if any Canadians are around and want to help explain why that is, I would love to hear it because people because it seems to me that <laughs> lots of people who are not indigenous claim to be in Canada and then they get grants on the basis of the work they're doing and then yeah. they're, they're revealed to be something they are they are not. But the thing that I think is worth saying about this is that people only ever do that in kind of bourgeois context. There is no, nothing has ever come to light about people doing that in like an ordinary working class neighbourhood because you wouldn't get anything out of it. We also have to think about what are the politics of identity that we have produced in elite spaces, in universities, for example, which is where this often happens, but also in the arts. What have we what have we created that makes this possible? Because if it doesn't happen in an, in your average working class housing estate in London, why is it happening in the university? We've got to think about that. So for me, there's a kind of class politics going on in this, frankly, quite bizarre phenomenon. And we need to think about how we address that to begin with. Thank you so much. This was such an insightful conversation. I'm asking all the listeners to please engage with Sita's work, Deadly and Slick, Sexual Modernity and the Making of Race, Empire's Endgame, and there's so many other works out there. Thank you so much once again. It's been lovely to chat to you both. Thanks for your great questions. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye.